6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 17 through 25. Turns out that you are the temple of God, right? You've all heard that expression from Paul? It turns out the structure that's implied by the Old and New Testament is the same structure that's in the temple. And there are some differences in the temple between the temple and the tabernacle. The body, soul, and spirit is a tabernacle model. There's something else added in the temple. And when you go into all that, it takes a long time, so I won't take it tonight, but I'm just teasing enough so you do some digging. You discover that there's something in the temple that's out of the tabernacle and relates to the mind. And what is the mind? It turns out every detail of Solomon's temple has a spiritual relationship, just like the tabernacle does. The study of the tabernacle is the obvious one. We've done that several times. Go back to Exodus, study the tabernacle. Every detail of the tabernacle obviously refers to Jesus Christ. The temple is a expansion of that, but also there's an intrinsic architecture that's in our very makeup that underlies all of this. It's a hypothesis for you to test in the scripture. And it would be grossly unfair of me to deny you the discovery <laughs> of those things. So I will leave that with you. But getting back here, when we say sensual here in Jude, we're saying soulish. Not sensual in a sense that's lascivious. There's sometimes the word sensual means that. Sensual in the bad sense. Here, the word sensual is meant in a neutral sense, but that makes it even more telling. Body, soul, and spirit. We look at 1 Thessalonians 5. What is the spirit? I'm going to suggest just as a working concept for tonight. It's worth much more study. The difference between the soul and the spirit. The soul is one's self-consciousness. Personality, emotions, will, those are all in the domain of the soul, at least as we would loosely use the term. That's the field of psychology, if you will. What's the spirit, the God consciousness? That's the highest, that's the element of communication with him and so forth. So that is very clumsy and imperfect and warrants much attention, but I'll leave you with that for now. Well, if that's the case, what's the best English equivalent for the soulish man. We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We looked at verse 13 a moment ago. I want to now take you to verse 14. In fact, let's repeat verse 13 so you get the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. We read it a little while ago. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That's the realm in which the Holy Spirit illuminates, the spiritual things. But Paul goes on to explain to the Corinthians why that requires supernatural agency. Because, verse 14, the natural man, the soulish man, okay, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are 
spiritually discerned. Okay? It wouldn't be a Chuck Fisher Bible study if I stayed on the subject. How many of you here have ever seen a hologram? Okay, you know, okay this is wonderful. See, this, I have a wonderful analogy, but it only works to physicists or people who are in optics. Because to use by analogy, you have to understand what a hologram is. Analogies fail if I have to explain what it is before I do the comparison. But you all know what photographs are. Photographs are images that are in the space-time domain. It's a, it's a plane that you, if you have a photograph, you have a spatial representation of something that you saw. A hologram is a Fourier transform of a spatial image. It actually is a three-dimensional image. If I had one here and held it up, a piece of film, in this light, it would look like a darkroom mistake. It would be fogged. I'm not using though this different kind. Now look at Master Charger right now. <laughs> but a, a basic hologram, what it really does, it carries just the interference patterns. But if you saw, it looks gray. Now, the way I do a hologram is I take an object, I illuminate it with a laser light. A laser is light that is very organized. It's very coherent, both in, in terms of its parallelism and in, in terms of time. And so I illuminate the object with a laser, and I let the light also hit the film. And what the film actually records is the interference of the light waves from the laser directly and from the reflections of the object, and it has just the interference bands. If I look at it in natural light, it looks fogged. If, however, I illuminate this plane, this film, with a laser that created the picture in the first place, you get an image. What makes it dramatic and provocative is the image is three-dimensional. If you move your eye, you can look around things. In the For example, I have a tie on. If I held my Bible up like this, and you took a picture with a camera, in the picture you could not tell what kind of tie I'm wearing because there are not Bibles in the way, right? If you took a hologram, you had a hologram of that, you could move your eye over this way and look around the Bible and see my tie. He says what they mean by a three-dimensional image. As you move, it actually has... It appears to have substance. Now, it turns out if you take the mathematical properties of lasers, they have an analogy to light. The first direct quote of God in the Bible is, let light be, and you can, I'll, I'll spare you all that tonight to keep it simple. But what's interesting is, is that if you take this book and hold it up in natural light, it looks like a collection of old legends and stories and quaint ideas. It has no form or comeliness that we should desire it. If I hold up a hologram without illuminate by the laser, it looks meaningless in natural light. It has no form nor comeliness that we would desire it. If I illuminate the hologram with the laser that created it in the first place, you get an image. Okay? If I take this book and have it illuminated by the light that wrote it in the first place, you get an image, the image of Jesus Christ. Now, something interesting about a hologram, if I had one here and I cut out one square inch of it, if I did that to a photograph, you've lost one square inch of the photograph. If I do it to a hologram, you haven't lost anything because whatever that square inch was covering, you can look around. In other words, have a hologram here with, say, 10 by 10 inches and has a square inch cut out of it. You can look around that hole. What you lose is resolution because the whole image is not quite as precise. If I take this scripture, the 66 books, 
and I reach in there and I tear out a chapter or two. What have you lost? You haven't lost the perception of Jesus Christ, his, his destiny, his mission, his, you know, the benefits. You know, there, is no, there is no chapter in the scripture on any doctrine. There's a chapter on baptism. There isn't a chapter on salvation. Everything's diffused. Okay? That's exactly what a communication engineer does if he anticipates sending a message down a channel in, a, in anticipation of hostile jamming. You diffuse the message over the available bandwidth. That's exactly what God has done, and he explains that in Isaiah chapter 28. I have established my truth, line upon line, precept on precept, here a little, there a little. It's distributed the same way that you would do with a hologram. It has certain properties. The properties, if I bored you with a physics lecture on the properties of a hologram, you discover they all have a spiritual analogy with the scripture. The natural man cannot perceive the truth of God without the agency of the Holy Spirit, which put this together in the first place. So whenever you get into a debate intellectually, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, the reason you should do it, but don't expect that to convert somebody. Because there's only one way that someone gets converted to a belief in Jesus Christ, and that's by the agency of the Holy Spirit. That's the way you came, whether you know it or not. That's the only way anyone else will. So that doesn't mean there's not an appropriate place for what we call apologetics. It's the classic name for giving a reason of the hope that is within you. But you need to understand that what really you're hoping to do is something only the Holy Spirit can do, and that's to give him the insights, the perception. Now, don't ignore the fact the Holy Spirit might be using that discussion for some effect. It typically is not his immediate, gee, I didn't realize that, and roll up the sleeves, and, you know, life isn't that simple. But recognize that what we're dealing with here is a supernatural situation. That's why, getting back to Jude, the word sensual here means soulish. Okay? There are places Judas talked about, lusts and lasciviousness and so forth. This isn't one of them. He's talking here, just a soulish man. These guys are soulish. Having not the spirit, it says in verse 19. See, that's the distinction. It isn't that they're, you know, doing pornographic magazines. It's not that kind of sensual. I mean, doing something wrong. It's just that they're sensual. They're natural. They're limited. They have not the spirit. Now, that raises the question, is an apostate saved? Told you right there. They have not the spirit. Can you be saved without the spirit? No. Believers are spiritual if they're obedient to the word of God. They may be carnal. They may stumble. They may be babes. 1 Corinthians 2.15, 1 Corinthians 3.1. There's a number of verses there. But believers in the scripture are never said to be sensual or natural men. They're believers. They're born in the spirit. Uncomfortable though it may seem philosophically, the world is in two camps. Two camps. There's no gray area. They're either born of the Spirit or they're not. And whoever you have, no matter how noble, how giving of themselves, however high a plane they might be on in a natural sense, that doesn't mean they're saved. They're only saved by one thing. Jesus Christ. And the only way they come to an awareness of Jesus Christ is through the Holy Spirit. 
There's no passage of the scripture which could be made the basis for the concept that a natural man ever was anything else but an unsaved man. Unsaved or natural men dominated by the senses or the self. They're dominated by the psyche. They receive not the things of the spirit for they are foolishness. And that's what First Corinthians, the whole second chapter is all about. And if you would like to explore that more, take it up on yourselves to read 1 Corinthians 2 in depth. What is the foolishness of God? God goes out of his way in, in his whole plan of salvation, his whole, from, from beginning to end, God has gone out of his way to do things in a way that you and I would never think of. Going to save eight people by a barge? You know, you can go through the scripture and, and just take item by item by item, and God goes out of his way to do things in a way that's going to seem bizarre. Whether it's the jawbone of an ass one place or naming the Syrian bathing in the muddy river another, the whole scenario is, is strange. What Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2 is the whole idea that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the ultimate foolishness, the most ridiculous idea to man, is that the entire universe is redeemed by the death of a carpenter's son on a Roman cross in Judea a little over 1900 years ago. That that's going to be the pivotal fulcrum of all the history of the universe, before and after. That's foolish. That's exactly what the Bible says. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us who are saved is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, the Jew first and also the Gentile. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8, 9. If you want to nail that one down. Now, in contrast that, a Christian is baptized by the Spirit of the body of Christ, sealed by the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, taught by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, so he can say, Abba, Father. And we can give you verses on each one of those. I don't think I need to this group. If that's foreign to you, time to do some homework, gang. <laughs> See me after the hour. Right. And, of course, apostate knows none of those things. Okay, we made it, believe it or not, to verse 20. <laughs> so now we shift to another four verses, and we're going to be talking here about, um, well, the first couple of verses about building, praying, keeping, and looking. Four verbs, or participles, or whatever. Okay. Verse 20, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Gee, doesn't that sound easy? But ye, beloved, building up yourselves. That's a little uncomfortable. I thought we just sort of sat back and let him do the whole job. Well, he does do the whole job, that is, in terms of your salvation. What's our side of that? We bear the responsibility for our self-development. Building here is a present participle, which implies it's a lifelong task. It's never done. You're not, you know, you're not through. Now, we talk about building. We could talk, we could from here go to a lot of different places. We could talk about um, building the church from Matthew 16, on the foundation of apostles, prophets, and so forth, Christ the chief cornerstone. But here we're talking really, we as living stones build a part of a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2.5, for those of you who want to trace that down. Now, there are actually nine steps. 2 Peter 1 will give you something you can make charts out of when you get home, should you choose to. 2 Peter... One, five through seven. There's nine steps here, we'll see. 
Second Peter chapter one verse five. Beside all this, giving all diligence—that's step one. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So there's your steps. Now that sounds good. How do we do this? How do you build up your faith? Faith cometh by what? Hearing. Okay, Romans 10, 17. In hearing by the Word of God. The way you build up your faith is to get in the Word. How do you cleanse from sin? Well, we've had that in Ephesians 5, 26, John 17, 17. Now you're clean through the Word, which, you know, I've spoken unto you. Jude, after assigning us the responsibility... Beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Then he talks about praying in the Holy Spirit. What are our references there? Ephesians 6.18 and Romans 8.26 and 27. I don't think I have to amplify that for this audience. Praying in the Spirit. Here's, the, here's your admonition to do so. Verse uh, 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, now that's a little... A little strange. Keeping yourselves, we are kept for Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.5 tells us. And the same word there is the same kept as the angels that are kept in darkness, the angels that sin. Remember in Jude 6, we went through all that. But the thing that you can trip here is, this does not say keep on loving God. What does it say? We need to care if it's important, otherwise we'll misunderstand what he's saying here. Keep yourselves in the love of God. It's not our love of God that's in view here. It's his love for us. But you say, well, gee, if he loves us, then what, what, what's my responsibility? I'll suggest that we review, when you get home, Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He removed himself from a place where he could enjoy the benefits of his father's love. Right? That is to the father's love to the fullest. He did not keep himself in his father's love. Did the father stop loving the prodigal son? No. But did the prodigal son organize his life so as to take the maximum fullest extent of his father's love? No. You see, so what, what I'm speaking by analogy here, that's really what he's saying. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, how do you do that? Listen to his call for obedience. John 15.10 and 1 John 3.23 will be your marching orders for those of you that would like to know how to keep yourselves in the love of God. John 15.10 and 1 John 3.23 and your first assignment will be to go dig it out. So I'll move on. Keep yourselves in the love of God looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. The word looking for, the word in the Greek, is translated four times waiting for and four times looking for. The example of the waiting for is in Luke 12, 36 and the looking for in Titus 2, 13. But it's looking for in the sense of awaiting, expecting, anticipating. And most of us, I think, in, the, in this group that are prophesying in the first place are, I think, sensitive to But that is what the Lord would have us do. And this progressive concept here, faith, love, and blessed hope, which is the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son, if you want to partition that and make something of that. But we're going to move on to verse 22, because I am determined to finish Jude tonight. Okay, now verse 22, 
He goes on, he says, And of some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now, what he's doing here, the structure of this is that he has exhortations here for us to grow, right? By building yourselves up in the faith, praying in the spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God and looking for. So you got those, you know, those four things, uh, the building, the praying, the keeping and the looking. What's our response to all of that? And that's our sacred duty. That is to be a witness. And he's here giving you advice about having a witness of some have compassion. Now, there are some translational differences here. Some manuscripts have a phrase in here, and some refute while they dispute. That's a third category. Here, if you look at your translation of the King James, you'll probably find two groups. Some manuscripts have a third group. But the main idea is that on some, he says, have compassionate understanding. Some people have sincere doubts. It's our mission to deal with those doubts. The word mercy in verse 21 is first mentioned in the New Testament, blessed are the merciful, Matthew 5, 7. Its last mention is here in Jude. The first mention of the word doubt is where Peter is sinking in the sea. We all know where the Lord told him to come with him, and when he looked down, and it's that doubt in Matthew 14 where the word doubt first shows up. He's saying here, have compassion on such, and um, what I have prepared here some remarks for those of you that in your in your Bibles you may have a phrase and some refute while they dispute let me comment on that the idea of um, being refuting that the word of God can refute punish convict or convert all those are valid substantiable roles of the word itself the word refute carries a punitive sense as it does in Hebrews 12:5. But the main challenge we have, without getting excessively into that, is turn to 1 Peter 3, 15. I know you know these verses, but I figure if I hit it long enough, you'll put it in your Bible memory list. But another way to summarize what Jude is admonishing us to do here is 1 Peter 3, 15, where he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Be ready to give every man an answer. That's your homework assignment. It's not enough for you just to come and fellowship and commit your life to the Lord. That's step one. Part of your assignment is to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Why? For many reasons, one of which is that you can, in fact, be ready to give every man an answer of the hope that is within you. Don't conclude from that that it's reason that causes a person to believe. I just went through that. On the other hand, you still have an obligation to defend and the classical term is apologize, but in the classical sense, to have apologetics. That is to have your background in what you believe sound enough that you can stand up and be counted in that way. Now you say, gee, that's kind of tough. Well, that's okay. James has a help there. If you turn to James, okay, James chapter 1 tells you how to go about it. It isn't easy. It takes a lot of work, but James does give you a key tool. James 1.5 is another Bible verse you want to mark down. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. 
the very specific ask and ye shall receive kind of promise by James. Seems kind of appropriate to quote from James, the Lord's other brother that wrote an epistle, so I thought I'm going to do that. Okay. Now, back to Jude. Of some have compassion, uh, making a difference, and that's making a difference phrase, a very difficult Greek phrase, and that's why some translated that some refute while they dispute with you, and it, uh, I think we've dealt with that. Verse 20, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Now, save with fear is a strange phrase. That what, what sort of carried on that is on the one hand, recognize the unsaved person you're dealing with is in peril. And your diligence and effectiveness at what God may have called you to do at that opportunity may save them from an eternity of punishment. That's one idea. It's obviously very clearly here. This eternal fire is first mentioned in Matthew 3. It's clearly the unquenchable fire. The last mention is Revelation 21.8. And the same idea is all through the Scripture. Lot and his daughters, we went through all of that. Uh, it was in Genesis 19. They were extracted from the fire. Uh, but incidentally, always by intercession. Even Lot was saved by the intercession of Abraham. Now, why do I emphasize that? Because all of us have problems in the family. A son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a father, a grandfather. How do you witness the family? Tough. What can you do best? Intercede. That is pray. God is in the miracle business. And uh, spouting off a favorite Bible verse or arguing some doctrinal point is not likely to yield a, a commitment to the Lord. I'm not saying it won't because the Lord can use many things. But the point is you often, often one of the most agonizing things I hear, if you have an unsaved person in the family, what can you do? It's my own personal experience that the Lord will usually, he will respond to a prayer and have somebody else reach that person, some event. Sometimes you have the opportunity, sometimes it'll be some other factor that will bring it to the moment of decision. It's interesting, I don't think anyone is ever saved without intercession. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.